Fantastical Truth has returned. This is the podcast where we find truth in fantastic stories, and then we apply that truth to the world our creator calls us to serve. Right now, our world is trying to stay hard at work, but here we're going to offer you any brief rest and recreation the creator has given to us. You can come inside. Hopefully we are safe and sterile. Take off that mask. You don't need it. This is episode 10, and I am Zachary Russell, but as always, call me Zach. And today our topic is, how can excellent Christian fiction strengthen our faith in Jesus? Stephen, I'll bet this one will be a little controversial compared to the other ones we've done. Absolutely. I'm uh, E. Stephen Burnett, by the way, the publisher of Lorehaven, and I'm entrusted with the ideas for Lorehaven. Zach, I have a great idea for getting more listeners for Fantastical Truth. Let's you and me deconvert. I have seen the light, old chum. I'm I'm just no longer a Christian because, well, I, I got to thinking about a few things I don't think anyone's ever thought of before. How could God make a rock too big for him to lift? What about all those nice non-Christians I keep meeting? I mean, that just overthrows everything the Bible says, right? I mean, I always learned that Christians or non-Christians were always rude, terrible people. Well, I'm going to assume you're not some character in Act One of a um, popular you know, movie on Pure Flix. At least I hope not. No, I am not. Uh, that was a, a April Fool's. That was an April Fool's Day prank, a great and wonderful prank that I've pulled on you and uh, upon all of our listening audience. But seriously, uh, this topic will be a bit controversial, so we will be praying for any grace and truth that our Lord Jesus, who was full of grace and truth, will share with us, because this is a serious matter we're going to explore, what some people call deconversion. Uh, that is, they're a deconverting away from the biblical Christian faith. As we record this over the last year or so, uh, we've uh, heard a few more of these public uh, cases. We'll just call them cases. Some people call them deconversion. Others call these deconstruction. They're saying the, the person who, who was a Christian, sometimes even a popular Christian, is now pulling apart uh, biblical faith, just breaking it down into the elements, and uh, it's uh, safe to no longer be a Christian. Right. So we're going to look at why some professing Christians reject their faith and, and why others don't. What goes on there? Of course, there are a lot of theological riddles here that, honestly, I, I think about every single day. And we're going to ask a very cautious question. Can excellent Christian-made stories help give young believers a stronger faith? And so you'll see our answer in a moment. Well, obviously, we think they can. And that's, that's the angle that we're going to have in this episode. It's not so much all of the arguments that people come up with against Christianity or what these particular individuals have said, but we're going to look into the people who have not deconverted and ask some questions about what, what causes them to hold on to their faith. Uh, we do need to cite a specific example, Zach. Uh, last year, I was at the Realm Makers Conference in 2019. Uh, we started to hear about one of these big cases. It was a chap called Joshua Harris, a pastor, author, former pastor, actually. Uh, he had gotten big in the early 2000s, writing the infamous book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And in July of 2019, he posted on his Instagram that he, uh, he and his wife, uh, whom he met in the sequel for the sequel, for I Kissed Dating Goodbye, that they were getting a divorce. Uh, the news rippled around the conference attendees just a bit, uh, many of whom had grown up at least uh, being familiar with this chap. A few weeks later, though, Harris posted uh, he was not only uh, getting a divorce from his, his wife, but also getting a far worse divorce. He considered himself no longer a Christian. Uh, he was going to deconvert. 
More recently, as we record this, uh, we've had the professed deconversion of the comedy duo Red and Link. Uh, they say they're rejecting their evangelical culture. Zach, you and I have talked a little bit about that. And again, we're not going to get into any of the specific things these guys have said, but it, we felt we do need to cite a few examples of, of the types of stories we're talking about. I've followed both those guys, or all three of those guys, I guess you could say, from, from the very beginning. I got the I Kissed Dating a Bite book in 1998 or 99, and then... Um, well, it was published in but, the early... I thought it was published in the early 2000s. I'll have to look that up. Uh, well, I can, I think it's, that's when he really started to get noticed because, uh, I was in college at the time and my college pastor always talked about, talked against that, the teachings in that book. Interesting. I, okay. it, it was a little too subtle for me to catch sometimes. Uh, he, he didn't come out right out and slam Joshua Harris, but it was so popular. Right. You couldn't come right out and slam Joshua Harris. Cause it meant that yeah, you wanted people to go out and uh, hook up and commit to commit sin. Right. I mean, it was, it was right. kind of a binary choice back then. Yeah, but Rhett and Link I've known about since at least 2007 or 2008. So, yeah, that that's... But both of those, you know, have, have definitely had their impact on me. All right. And, and this is where we encounter some items uh, for the old Fantastical Truth podcast concession stand. This is the part of the show where we step forward and we try to, uh, try to uh, anticipate the stuff that listeners might say, well, you didn't say enough about this. Yes, that's true. Uh, we don't have unlimited time and neither do you. So in the concession stand, point one, uh, we can't go through everyone's professed deconversion story. Uh, we name check these few people just as examples. That's basically it. Two, uh, we might touch on the whole issue of whether someone who deconverts was ever truly saved. Believe me, I'd like to do that. If it was, uh, if, if it was just a truth podcast and not fantastical truth, we might get into all that and argue the theology and all that, but let's leave with this instead. First, in some way, the deconverting person is disobeying God's will. Second, God's warnings about falling away in the Bible are real and they're serious. And third, God is faithful. Quote, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. End quote. Philippians 1.6. Third concession stand item. Uh, we still hope that these folks will be believers uh, in the future. Uh, lots of people, even people with more public platforms, have professed doubt in Jesus, but they do return to him later, sometimes after a great struggle. By the way, even if they stay deconverted, we don't think that Christians should be frightened long term by these stories. Anyway, we've got plenty of former atheists and former former Christians on our side. I think that that'll bear out uh, as we move further toward eternity and understand the amazing things that God was doing in others' life stories. Ah, fourth item on the concession stand, perhaps next most important, we're going to view these accounts in general and specifically with sympathy, but not above criticism. Just because you said the church done me wrong, I'm no longer in the church, we're going to listen. But that also means, you know, you're still subject to questions, just like the, uh, the bad churches are subject to questioning. And finally, fifth item on the concession stand, uh, finally most important, as we raise questions about what things may have helped prevent people from falling away from the faith or uh, deconverting, uh, we don't mean that what we say is some kind of a method that it's always going to work to keep you strong in the faith, impervious to doubts or the influence of competing religion. Jesus doesn't give us that kind of method. If we did, I think that would be a prosperity gospel. Here, uh, we would say, just read better Christian fiction and then you'll be prepared for all the bad ideas in the world. We don't say that. But we can look at our own accounts and the accounts of others who are strong Christians and see the common factors. 
Any thoughts, Zach, before we move ahead? Those are really important. I think especially how you said, let's remember that we have a lot of people on our, on our side that are former atheists. I can think of this one professor at the University of Texas. She grew up complete atheist, studied astrophysics, which you would think would, would deepen that even further, but it actually led her to faith in Christ. She's got a great story. Her name is Dr. Sarah Salviander. And I mean, that's just one of many, many, many stories I can think of. And so it's a really good reminder that we need to focus on that because when we hear these deconversion stories, it can make us angry. It can make us sad. It can make us kind of hit between the eyes. And so these are very important points, Stephen, you bring up because we have to look at the whole picture and have have a whole of the Bible approach to this topic. And a whole of the Christian experience approach. What I see when I hear about uh, at least these two accounts that we've mentioned, they seem, at least in what they've shared publicly, to be coming at the issues that they've raised from an entirely rational thought perspective. Words, words, words. Uh, Harris has posted like some beautiful nature photography. He's like out in the woods somewhere, staring off into the middle distance, contemplating nature or something. But what he says is more about, well, I've thought about Christianity and it doesn't make any sense anymore. Actually, that's more of the red and link perspective is they, they say that they have gone through the apologetics arguments and they just find those lacking. And in either case, these guys are referring to their own experiences and these rational thoughts, but they're not talking as much or analyzing as much the role of imagination, either in converting to Christianity originally or deconverting to Christianity and uh, not really not converting to anybody, but instead they're actually veering into the, what I would call the default religion of human selfism. And I got to thinking about that in our conversation in episode seven of the podcast, the one with Brian Gadawa, about how God is both perfect rational thought and creative imagination, whereas humans are broken creatures. We talked about that. We're, we're bifurcated was your fancy word. And because of that, we maybe like to pretend we can just go one way or the other. We can be all completely rational thought or else we're just all free-spirited creatives who don't have rational thought. My upshot in raising this is that I just don't see a lot of that imagination emphasis in the deconversion stories. They, they seem to hide that in the background. They seem unaware of the role that their own imaginations has played in the deconversion. And at least some of them speak as if only the pure rational thought made them change. Kind of what I see, too, is that it's like the very first time they've used their imagination. Like, what if the Bible isn't true? Oh, my goodness. And, you know, and that thought uh, starts to spiral out of control where I, that's really the, the, the best role of apologetics is to really help you analyze all the arguments against the Bible or faith in God and then see how they don't hold up. And so... Yeah, and, and it, it discounts how imagination itself led C.S. Lewis to faith. He had never considered what if Christianity was true. And it was the George MacDonald Fantasties book that had said baptized his imagination. It made him think, oh, maybe Christians are correct about all this. And, and that was the first step. And so I feel like with deconversion, it's the opposite. It's like they, It's like the first time they've used imagination but in a negative way but and then they didn't know where to go from there i don't know that's just my hot take i guess zach do you want to know how many times i've actually run through a little imaginative simulation of what if god wasn't real what if christianity isn't true it's 
a lot, actually. Now, maybe this is because I, I have a novelist brain and this is how I think, but I find it fascinating to ask those what if questions. And it also helps that I tend to enjoy stories that assume either the non existence of God or are simply agnostic on the question. Every Disney fairy tale movie, for example, it's not a deist movie. God is not there. He's not opposed, at least not directly, but he's not there. Most secular fiction is the same. It's not antagonistic toward God or the gospel. They simply take them as a given that they're, they don't exist. So this is something that I think Christians who enjoy these kinds of stories are used to doing all the time. But certain kinds of individuals who grew up in maybe an evangelical culture, in theory, they should be used to that but they seem not to be. If I have one of these people in front of me who said that they had deconverted, I, I would have two main questions for them. The first one would be, what kinds of Christian-made stories did you grow up with? Did you grow up with those kinds of stories that actually worked through the stuff that you say you're working through now? Questions like, what about all the nice gay people I meet? Or what about death and suffering? Did you grow up with stories that with excellence and biblical truth challenge the idols that humans can worship apart from the gospel? What sorts of images and songs and movies and books and pictures could take that shortcut to your brain? Like we were talking about in that previous podcast episode, episode seven, the stuff that zooms past all the rational thoughts, part of you and goes down deep to that center of your desire to either bring out the desires that you have, or even put some into you. Meaning, exacerbating a desire that you already have. That's a lot for question one. But my second question then would be what kinds of stories are going on for these folks now? They say they've deconverted. How are their imaginations being informed now? What sorts of desires are stories and images drawing out of them and deep internal longings that they didn't even know they had? And and we've talked on background about at least one of these conversion stories about like what what may be the real issue of desire going on there. And some of that, of course, you know, the only people who can know about that is the individual and God. But that's the sort of thing to which I think we need to subject these kinds of stories as we're asking uh, about the role of imagination. I like our focus today, though, in that we're going to talk about how great stories affect us in a positive way and help us hold on to our faith. We're going to talk about how great stories shape our deepest desires, how great stories shape our view of the world, and how great stories prepare us for hard truths about God. So Stephen, tell me about this first part. Great stories shape our deepest desires. Well, by contrast, I think that a desire in some deconversion stories, and I don't know if it's the case with the ones that we've mentioned, but I would go so far as to say that it is probably a factor in whatever deconversion accounts that you, our listener, has heard among friends or acquaintances or in the media. I think that some folks who deconvert have internalized an, an image, an imagination, a deep desire of, I want to be popular and successful, which makes a lot of sense. Who wants to be obscure and impoverished? Very few individuals. And I think in this case, if, uh, if people who used to be in a professional Christian ministry, if they found that desire being fulfilled, maybe a desire they didn't even know they had, then they stayed Christian. But when the vocation no longer fulfilled that desire, I think it's fair to ask, is that what happened there? But what shapes our desires? 
stories help shape our desires. And I'll dare say that people I know who've reacted against these deconversion stories often have not said things like, well, they've gotten the arguments wrong, or they should read uh, XYZ works of apologetics. These desires are more firmly grounded in healthy works of biblical imagination that put flesh on these truths. Zach, you've had some stories about how uh, stories have shaped your desires. Like, and and I, I feel like I need to disclaim, you know, when I say shape desires, I don't mean you didn't have that desire, but the story gave it to you. I think it's more an issue of the story draws it up out of your soul and magnifies it and says just by virtue of existing, hey, this is a good desire. Or in a corrective way, a story can say this is a bad desire. This is a sinful desire. You shouldn't have it. But you said that you, uh, you found a particular series of desires magnified through a, a particular evangelical story franchise. Yeah. So we, we talked a couple episodes ago about how I discovered Left Behind first as a VHS movie. Actually, so left behind the movie I saw beginning of college, right after college, I went on a two-year mission trip to another part of the world, which uh, I, I can't talk very openly about, but this is, this is how big of a nerd I am, Stephen. I had a Palm Pilot ebook program. So yes, but before Kindles, before iPhones, I had a, I had a Palm Pilot. I was one of those guys. And I had this, uh, I think the program is called Palm Reader, which, you know, could not what it sounds like, but it's just Palm Pilot ebook reader. It's a, it's a new age occult yeah. app there. <laughs> Frank, Frank, Frank Friday would not approve. <laughs> he warned me about this. I downloaded on there and I, I mean, I purchased and, and downloaded the entire Left Behind series through the whatever ebook store there was back then that doesn't exist anymore. Coincidentally, I don't have access to those books anymore. We'll we'll talk about the fantastical elements of Left Behind some other time. What really spoke to me while I was on that mission trip, because I wasn't expecting, you know, the rapture to happen while I was there. I was really hooked on the characters and how they each came to Christ. Some of them happened right away, the very beginning of the series. Some of them happened at the very end. And then there were, you know, most of them that happened somewhere in the middle. What I particularly loved was not just when a character would come to Christ, you know, a made up character believe in Jesus, but when they would tell each other their own testimonies of how they came to Christ. As a missionary, this really gave me a lot of hope because I was in a part of the world with just very little gospel presence, very few, well, very few open churches, very few publicly professing believers yeah, and left behind. That's also the environment they're living in where they're very much being persecuted and they're underground. And, and I also just saw a little bit of myself in each of those stories. You know, whenever you hear someone's story of how they came to faith and how they came from darkness to light, you see a little of yourself in there because you, you realize it's the same, you have the same savior, no matter what, what culture you're from, what language you speak. And it also really gave me this perspective, Stephen, that no one is too far gone. And, and that's something I've, I've held on to ever since, is that don't ever give up. You know, Jesus said, don't stop praying. I mean, he gives that whole parable of the, the widow and the um, unrighteous judge. And I love how um, the gospel writer introduces that parable by saying, Jesus told them a story about why you should pray and never give up. But also, you know, in the face of these deconversion stories, I keep going back to in John 6, when one by one, all the people that are following Jesus in this big crowd just leave. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, you know, are you going to leave too? 
And they say, well, you have the words of life. Where else shall we go? And honestly, that, that has been, I, that, that's like my foundational truth of my life, Stephen. Like I, you know, I didn't know Christ personally until I was 16. I, I still remember my life very clearly before I knew him. And man, I, I don't want to go back to that. I don't want to go back to that, that loneliness and despair and that just so many problems that I personally had before I did not know him. I don't want to go back to that. Where, and where else am I going to go? Like, you know, Jesus, his words have spoken life into my life. It's not that I face the apocalypse every day. Like, um, I want to say Buck Rogers, but that's not his name. And that's not Kirk Cameron's name. It's Buck uh, I Williams. I Buck Williams. Cameron Buck Williams, senior writer, <laughs> Global Weekly. Why do I know this? <laughs> you know, it's not that we face the apocalypse like Buck Williams did, of course. <laughs> I'm trying not, not to make a lot of coronavirus references, but we are, you know, maybe that's going to unlock that achievement. But it's more that I know what a disaster my internal life was before Christ. Even though on the outside, my life looked fine to most people, that was kind of one of the barriers to my faith was I thought I was fine and didn't need God because on the outside, things are fine. So for me, there's there's just not any question, should I live apart from Christ? Because I've been there and I've done that and no thanks, don't want to do that again. Well, Zach, you've gone really personal and that makes me want to ask you about the difference between your story coming to faith as a teenager and some of these deconversion stories, including the ones that we mentioned earlier, to a man, these chaps grew up in evangelical culture. Joshua Harris and Reddit Link both say, oh, yes, you know, we went to church all the time. It was part of life, you know. And then in uh, Harris's case, he got into professional Christian ministry for a very long time, wrote books and everything beyond just I kiss dating goodbye. And now they're, they're deconverted. And at least in Red and Link's story, they make allusions to the fact of that the cheesy Christian culture had something to do with it. They invariably will speak in terms of embarrassment about the types of non-excellent Christian culture they were used to. And you'll hear that plenty from you know people who aren't so famous who also say, yeah, I'm not into the whole church thing anymore. You know, It's not the main reason. Oh, Christ, bad Christian movies made me convert because they're just too terrible. Well, I've got some bad secular movies to show you then maybe you just don't know about but in your case it's interesting that you cite the left behind series which uh, is often mocked and lampooned as an example of evangelical excess Uh, we're crazy about prophecies we want the world to end Uh, we don't care about this earth that we just want the antichrist to nuke everything and then jesus to nuke the rest and then we're off to heaven somewhere but in your case, you view that more positively. And it sounds to me that your positive response is based in part on the fact that you know what the alternative is. These former evangelical kids who seem not to have gone through a real serious, my whole family died in a terrible accident style crisis of faith, they, they seem not to have that perspective, or at least they don't have it yet. And Lord willing, maybe they will. And then Jesus will bring them back to his people. So just to clarify one thing, I I did grow up in a family that went to church. I just never took it on as my own until late in high school. In fact, my mom took me to church kind of kicking and screaming for a lot of years because I I did not want to go, but my mom wanted me to grow up in a church environment and I'm I'm very very thankful for that looking back. Just through a lot of personal tragedy that we experienced, that's what left me hungry for there to be a God, a perfect heavenly father that loved me and that had a had a plan for my life just to put it simply 
it's interesting how a lot of people that will point to tragedy as a reason why they lost their faith. In my case, I, I see it exactly the opposite. I can I can look back and see how a lot of the tragedy that happened in my my early life, God worked good through all of that and put me in exactly the right place to hear the gospel. It, it, it was the tragedy itself that sort of put that seed of imagination in me of like, well, what if life could be different? That's what made me want there to be something, something beyond. And before I was a Christian, I, I found or I looked for that answer in other places and just more modern kind of new age kind of perspectives on life because I wanted there to be something in control. By contrast, I read a very curious thing in a lot of these deconversion stories. They don't think that someone's in control or they don't want someone to be in control. They want, they want to be in control. They've been there, done that. This whole, yeah. I want someone to be in control thing is old hat to them. They, they seem not to have felt this very seriously in, in, in their heart. You know, Stephen, I, just getting personal again, I've thought about this a lot with my kids. Like, yeah, obviously I want to protect them as much as possible, but <laughs> my friend uh, Dan and I from college, which I hope he listens to this, we always used to joke about this. Oh, you should go out and build your testimony before you actually become a Christian, you know, have some kind of crazy wild life and then come to Christ. So then you'll have a better testimony and that's a lot more interesting. <laughs> that's kind of an old, old joke among Christians too, is that yeah. we, we want the uh, wild drug using bike rider <laughs> type who then converts, you know, and then he's, he's toughened up from that experience. So he's a, he's a very strong uh, Christian influence, but he's also saved. So he's safe. Yeah. Right. It, then it's more interesting, but yeah, I obviously don't want that for my kids, but I do want their, you know, the, I want their imagination and their mind to be resilient enough to work their way through these, these kind of challenges that these other gentlemen have, have gone through. So, well, let's talk about point two great stories shape our view of the world. Tell me about that. Well, we've, we've almost crossed over into this, you know, as we're talking about how stories are there to pull out our desires. And so I would ask someone who claimed to have deconverted. I, as part of my questioning that story, I would ask what kinds of stories have you been feeding on for lack of a better term? Not because, Oh, the story made you do this but more like what are the desires of your heart that are revealed by the type of stories that you've been enjoying? And then what sorts of desires have you had magnified because of your, uh, your choices and how you're feeding your imagination? Because those stories not only reflect our desires, but they shape our view of the world. I have to point to a few of these specific examples from deconversion stories. For example, when people say they, they fall away from the faith, they say, in part, they did so because they met someone really nice who wasn't a Christian. And this sometimes in how they retell their experience seems to have come as a great shock to them, especially in a culture that is uh, spreading uh, what I would call the religion of sexualityism. Uh, the person or people that they've met may have a, a particular uh, practice in their, their view of marriage or their view in relationships. And the deconverter will say, well, if that person was actually a very nice and moral person, then what I've believed is a lie. But where did they get that belief about the world that all non-Christians or a particular type of non-Christian is just a terrible, nasty, hateful person? When I hear that someone says they grew up with that belief, 
with all the gospel grace I can muster, I try not to roll my eyes. I try to check my spiritual privilege because I've always known that. I've always known that non-believers can be nice people. In other news, water, wet. Of course, <laughs> non-Christians are nice people. I, I grew up hearing this not only in real life, particularly because, like for example, growing up, uh, it became pretty evident, at least in the area in which we lived, that if someone said they, was a, they were a Christian, uh, they probably wouldn't do very good work on your home. You were better off hiring a non-Christian to do that who wasn't leading with the listing in the Christian directory or the little fish sticker on their business card. We just knew that non-Christians sometimes do things better. And the stories I grew up loving cultivated that same view of the world in me. A few episodes ago, I referred to the, the Adventures in Odyssey broadcast. They're still running a Christian audio drama. They had many non-Christian characters in there who were just good people. Uh, one of the one of my favorites was a character named Eugene Meltzner, who was like a brainy college student tech uh, computer scientist type character. He would use big words all the time. He's so much fun. He's still around. Of course, they got him saved eventually, but it took a very, very, very long time. And all throughout, they would just have Eugene on the show, a non-Christian existing among the Christian characters, and you just wouldn't think anything of it. So that idea was planted deep in me. Non-Christians are not always the hideous bad guys. I would say for me and for other Christians who grew up enjoying these kinds of stories, I would wager to say we are immune to the idea that because non-Christians are nice, therefore there's some great challenge to the faith. My kids are listening to Adventures in Odyssey. They have the the app where they can <clears throat> listen to all of them. And I, we've all fallen in love with Eugene. He's he's such a fun character. And that, you know, has cemented this thought in my mind that when we meet non-believers that we really like, shouldn't that in a way deepen our faith to say, man, look at all these amazing people that God has made. And wouldn't it be great if they knew the Lord themselves? And wouldn't it be awesome if they were part of our spiritual family? And it's, it's just sad to me that a lot of people don't have that conclusion, that their conclusion is, oh, it must be that God isn't real if all these nice people can be nice apart from faith in Christ, which, by the way, is a sort of uh, sleight of hand that I think a lot of people fall for, which is this, uh, this false dichotomy that the only way to be a good person is to be a Christian. And you hear a lot of atheists say this, well, that's not true because look at so-and-so. And that's not actually what the Bible teaches. You know, the Bible teaches that goodness itself is from God. And Jesus said that even evil people can give good gifts to their children. Yeah. Right. And so it's it's funny how, I mean, it's not funny. It's sad how this this alternate belief system is taken over in a lot of Christian minds that think, oh, only nice people exist in Christendom. I guess what I'm getting at is, what is the conversion story that most people think is going to happen? Do they think they're going to meet this hateful, awful non-Christian and then <laughs> who they can't stand, and then they're going to preach the gospel, and then that person just instantly gets saved and becomes a nice person? I mean, that's and maybe that's the story they grew up with, which you know that's kind of what we're talking about here. I'm sure there are some evangelical stories, particularly for children, that have to be a little simpler. For example, to compare with Disney cartoons. You know, the bad guys are always going to be dark and or flamboyant and or over the top evil, whereas the good guys are going to be easily recognizable just because that is suitable for the visual medium and the audience. And some Christian entertainment might be the same way. 
at the same time, because it is more of a universal bad guys look bad, good guys look good across Christian media and across secular media. You'd think that a Christian kid or someone who was raised in the evangelical culture would grow up cultivating the idea that, okay, things are more complicated in the real world. The bad guys aren't always waving Nazi flags. However, I'm sure that there are some churches or religious uh, leaders who would seem to teach otherwise. At the same time, I think it is kind of on the person to understand, no, that's, that's not how the real world works. And yet it is also on the church to teach that uh, ex- these examples of common grace that you are talking about, that evil people can give good gifts to their children and that God makes uh, the sun to shine on the righteous and unrighteous alike. That's called common grace. We need to name that teaching in our nonfiction teaching, but we also need stories that show it. And I think that even if you grew up in a solid church where you got the sermons about common grace along with everything else, if you didn't grow up with stories that illustrated that, that took that shortcut to your heart and your imagination, maybe I don't blame you. If you somehow develop the idea that non-Christians always look and act bad or mostly look and act bad, and Christians are always the good guys and never, ever have church splits or uh, hypocritical failings or any other terrible things that we hear about. The whole notion of evil and suffering is obviously a huge topic. And that's what so much of this hinges on. It's like, if I encounter evil and suffering and I don't think I should, you know, because I've kind of swallowed this story idea that, oh, Christians don't suffer, you know, only non-Christians suffer, which is like a really simplistic maybe take on Proverbs, then you can see how that would really shake someone's faith. So a story I'm going to talk about briefly here is a book called The Sparrow. It's by Mary, Mary Doria Russell, no relation to me. And then there's a sequel called Children of God. And it is a very fascinating take on the idea of finding faith in the midst of suffering. So it's about a band of Jesuit priests that go on a interstellar adventure to the first planet that they've discovered alien life on. Uh, and then things go horribly wrong. <laughs> There's uh, very real evil that happens and, and just very terrible tragedies that happen. And the, the main character in this uh, nearly pretty much loses his faith throughout the series. And he really is just this very passionate character and just has um, a lot of anger towards God and towards the church and towards everything. But in the whole arc of the story, God clearly is involved and has other plans, you know, and so I, I won't give away the spoilers, but you know, the book is a little cynical about the church and but I, I feel like the debates between the Christian characters, it goes very, very deep because of the amount of trauma that happens. And I read that book, Steve, and I'm like, well, my life hasn't been that bad. <laughs> my faith will survive. But again, and that, and that may be a little bit of a trap. But if this character can, can re-find his faith in the midst of everything that's happened to him, then, then, I, then I'll be okay too. I don't know if that was the point. I'm still trying to find out more about this author, but the interesting thing about this book is that Christians and non-Christians alike have enjoyed it. And I first heard about it on a secular tech blog where people that grew up in the church and then that now don't live as Christians were talking about this book saying, oh, this is a really beautiful story about 
science fiction adventure and and a struggle of faith and just very you know honest characters and they didn't feel like it was preaching at them and I didn't feel like it was trying to tear me apart from my faith but it, it's just a a very deep dive into this whole idea of tragedy and faith you know and this is one of those things that Jesus talked to us about that um, one of the four soils is the soil that's filled with uh, brambles you know thorns the the pleasures of the world and the sufferings of the world. And it's just always been interesting to me that those have gone together in the mind of Jesus and in human experience that we can just as equally get torn away from our faith by the pleasures of the world and not just the suffering of the world. For more on that book, we'll have to do a whole episode. But our third point here is great stories prepare us for hard truths about God. And, you know, we've talked about that a little bit, but Stephen, tell us, tell me more about the hard truths you're thinking about? The hard truths I'm considering are the fact that God does allow death and suffering for reasons that Christians of good faith can debate. And yet, do we really wrestle with this fact, even if not in our real lives, which obviously we will, but even in the good times in our real lives, are we preparing to face this reality in our imaginative life. For example, the cliche of evangelicals is, is that all or most of our artwork doesn't show the harsher side of things. Our movies are pure, our salvation stories are simple, and people are basically decent and at most PG-rated before they get saved in at least the more popular stories that spread among certain sectors of evangelical culture in America. Uh, To be sure, we don't need those stories to reckon with death and suffering. All we need is the sufficient word of God. But even drawing from that example, Scripture does not simply present rational arguments for why God allows death and suffering. In the book of Job, for example, it is uh, is a gritty and sometimes disturbing poetical work, uh, apparently about a real person, Uh, who had these terrible things happen to him and then undergoes all of these debates over why it's happening. Is it because he has sinned? And then a lot of people kind of assume that at the end, when God shows up, that God is there to explain. God, however, simply shows examples of his might, a whirlwind, and many examples of his creation, including a creature that I will continue to argue is actually Gojira, Leviathan, in Job 41. Uh, God points to these examples and says, I'm God, you're not. And essentially, you're going to have to live with that. Now, the story gets a sort of happy ending. Job has a lot of his uh, family and property restored to him. But the story doesn't answer that. And if Christian stories, the the stuff that we put into our imagination, pretends to answer that question, oh, so-and-so's daughter died and it was horrible, but at the end, he, he's okay. He's okay. He's completely healed then that is going to give uh, us a false idea of what death and suffering are going to be like in the real world. I think that that is why it is so important that we as Christians growing up and trying to strengthen our faith, not just through nonfiction teaching, but through the stories that we enjoy, those stories do need to show death and suffering as realities. And it also needs to, these stories, they need to allude to the fact that scripture sometimes does not explain exactly why they happen. We only know that God is good and that he has allowed them. And in, to some degree that Christians can debate, he is contr- in control of these terrible things that happen. 
but we've got to feed those ideas into our imaginations so that our faith is strengthened. We don't expect a perfect life, whether or not we follow perfect faith steps of some kind. We expect that death and suffering are going to happen. And we kind of alluded to this a little bit in our uh, a few episodes ago, talking about apocalyptic fiction or, or rather more pandemic fiction. The fact that we have to be training our imaginations to expect these things and to draw it back to the deconversion stories. When they're talking about uh, the reasons why they deconverted, I don't hear them saying a lot about, at least the popular ones, they're actually not saying a lot about death and suffering. But you know that they do in, in the stories from friends and acquaintances that we've heard. And in that case, I'd want to ask those persons, did you grow up expecting death and suffering? Like, you know, in your case, you said it was a very, some very bad circumstances that drew you closer to God. But even apart from that, the stories that we told ourselves or that we heard in church or in our Christian media or even secular media, they should be preparing us for those realities. So it's not going to ambush us and suddenly we get, uh, get into college and something terrible happens and then we realize, well, there's no God. I didn't expect any of this. Yeah, I have um, a really good friend from college that he went through a period of deconversion and then he found his faith again. It started with thinking this of this whole notion of why do people suffer and why, why do people suffer and die apart from ever hearing the gospel? And that is a very tough question and uh, more than we can cover in this podcast episode, but that, uh, that really rocked his faith. And I just thought, man, that's something we gotta, we gotta study more in story form to prepare our minds to actually encounter that. Let me talk about a couple books that have been very key to strengthening my faith in the midst of suffering. And these are, we're going to go to the real world now. These are uh, nonfiction books. Although I've heard this great quip that a, a nonfiction, like a biography should feel unbelievable. So, you know, it's still going to get a little fantastical here. I want to talk about just very briefly, the biographies of brother Andrew and Elizabeth Elliot and the story of Louis Zamperini and Unbroken. All of these people experienced just horrendous suffering. So Louis Zamperini was, his plane was shot down in the Pacific during World War II. He was put in jail and tortured. He was a POW for a very, very long time. Brother Andrew grew up during World War II when the Nazis invaded Holland. Well, then, then he went to war in the Far East and then eventually became a Christian and then a missionary behind the Iron Curtain and so endured just horrendous persecution. And Elizabeth Elliot, as you may, most of our listeners uh, may be aware, her and her husband, Jim, were missionaries in South America. Her husband and, and many other husbands were murdered by the, uh, the tribe they were trying to reach there. And they lived in you know, very, very primitive conditions. And so we have, uh, we have read the book, the biography of Brother Andrew to our kids. And we're currently reading Elizabeth Elliot's biography. And when our kids get a little older, then they can hear Louis Zamperini's because it's, it's pretty stark what he went through. But, you know, with all of these stories, Stephen, again, it's when I go through suffering in my own life and, you know, like we're going through now with coronavirus, it's like, hey, I'm in good company. I am in this great cloud of witnesses now that has gone before me either through through just some global disaster or through some persecution or personal tragedy, I'm not alone in this. I've even been thinking about that with coronavirus. We've all seen these articles by now. Oh, are we living in the end times? Is this one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? 
And one of the best replies to that I've read was, was no, we are, first of all, you just look at the Bible. This is not one of the plagues of Revelation. But second of all, let's think back to Christians that endured the Spanish flu or the Black Plague or any number of major disasters that have happened in church history. We're just the next one. Let's now study the faith of these Christians and their resilience and how the church got through this. And that, that is a much better thing to study, right? It, it's just, it's weird to me how we automatically go, am I the first one to encounter this? Are we the last generation? Is this it? You know, and, and I understand that impulse, but I've really been in my own mind, just encouraged to go back instead of just going forward, go, to go back and say, who has already encountered this? What can I draw from? I'm a big fan of all three of these biographies. Again, it's, it's kind of the, where else am I going to go? And they all ask these questions. My wife, who's, who's not a, a sci-fi nerd like me and reads this weird books like The Sparrow, her favorite book is Corey Ten Boom's The Hiding Place, which actually would, would probably be a very uh, appropriate book now with all the uh, shelter-in-place rules that we're under. So these stories of, of real saints through the history have a tremendous power to strengthen our faith in suffering. Stephen, why don't we move into some applications for what we can do now? Well, some of these are drawn from what we've already talked about, but I've grouped these into a short list of three. The first one is a point that we have erred on the side of overemphasizing in this and in previous episode or two, Christians of all life stages using, of course, scripture and teaching and even uh, materials such as nonfiction books or biographies, but also the types of stories, fantastical and otherwise, that you uh, feed your imagination with. Prepare for the bad stuff now. Prepare for the doubts. Prepare for all of those terrible circumstances that could lead you to question your faith in a very serious way. And as we said in episode eight, the best time to do that, the best time to be a uh, a faith prepper, to be a death and suffering prepper is when things are going okay. Do that preparation in the good times so that you're prepared for the harder times. And that also means, at least for me, that the best time to engage with a story, especially a a solid Christian-made story that reckons with the hard realities of death and suffering, sometimes the best time to do that is actually when you're feeling good. You can start to maybe shape your imagination around that possibility so that when it comes, as Scripture says, you're not going to be surprised in the uh, the face of, of suffering or persecution, you know, as if uh, this this is completely something completely uh, unknown that you didn't expect. My second application is uh, specifically to Christian parents and Christian leaders. And speaking as a former kid myself, make sure your kids get these kinds of stories. Of course, Zach, as you mentioned, it's important to keep the age appropriateness in view. There might be a, you know, if it's a biography or even a, a story that has some more challenging content you know maybe your child is not ready for that but i think that parents should be testing the child's maturity constantly sometimes speaking as a former kid kids react more strongly to challenging content than you think you'd be surprised as to what they find scary and what gives them nightmares you don't want to get ambushed by that if possible but other times sometimes they're more red more than ready for the hard stuff there were several uh, Odyssey episodes, for example, that maybe I thought while listening to it, oh, wow, this is, this is actually going into some mature themes I'm not sure I'm ready for. And then when it's done and I think about it, I realize, actually, 
that was part of the maturing process for me. The maturing process is shaped by stories, not just uh, you go off and mature and then you go to the story. Like it's actually part of the process that I think even in the process of sanctification that God can use. And my third application is more specifically about these deconversion stories. Sometimes when I read these, I see people, Christians, well-meaning Christians, who share these stories, and they're almost over-empathizing with them. I think that regardless of what the deconversion storyteller is actually saying, the Christian may share the story and say, well, this is an example of what's wrong with the church. And if only we fixed XYZ about the church, then we could prevent this sort of story. Seems to be the implication. In other words, the person is sharing the deconversion story more as a symbol of their own story rather than paying attention to the deconversion story for what it is saying. So my, my caution there is let's be careful not to read these stories, the deconversion story, as a drama to play out our own struggles with Christian truth or more often with Christians themselves. You know, those bad Christians, the church back home, the legalistic ones. But that person who deconverted is not you, and their enemies may not be the same as your enemies. Their drama is not your drama. If we proceed as if it is, then we might be making false judgments. Everybody is different. Everybody's story is different. Instead of reading someone else's deconversion story in light of our story, we need to read that story in light of the scripture, the gospel. That's the big story that interprets every other story, including deconversion stories. And God's story, the gospel, the Bible, is the only story that should be above question. Fortunately, God does invite us to wrestle with him. He invites us to challenge what he's doing, which I think is kind of hilarious. But that's actually one of the little truths that helps me in those times when I'm tempted to doubt, either when things are really bad or even when things are really good. I know that God himself has inspired his word that includes true life historical narratives of heroes who have wrestled with him, sometimes literally in the case of Jacob. Or God has also inspired the Psalms, where the psalmists are asking God, how long you're enabling all these villains who are doing all these terrible things and oppressing people? Or the prophets say the same thing. That encourages me a lot. Those things help for me to prove that the gospel is true, that God is real, he is not above challenge, but then in another sense, he is above challenge. The challenging, the doubting can only last so long. It's the doubt itself that needs to be deconstructed, not just the gospel. Amen to that. We've been reading Second Timothy in our family, and you know it's just so stark that there are deconstructors all the way back then in the first century. Um, Paul mentions Hymenaeus and Philetus. He says they've departed from the truth and are ruining the faith of some. He talks about Alexander the coppersmith who did great harm. And then he also mentions Demas. He says, Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world. Ouch. You know, and that's another one of those things that sort of motivates me in a weird way of like, man, I don't want my name in the list of these alongside these guys' names. But just to contrast that with something more positive, after all these names, he says, bring Mark with you for he is useful to me in ministry. And you know, Mark was one of those guys that Paul had a lot of disagreements with in, in the middle of Acts. Mark apparently abandoned them, and then Barnabas wanted to go encourage him and try to help him. Paul did not have any patience, and maybe that's, maybe that's on Paul. I don't, I don't know the whole situation, but anyway, they had a big blow up. But then later on, Mark 
came back to the faith and he apparently was very active uh, in ministry in some capacity and and Paul recognized that and publicly commended him and so again it's like that's where I want my name to show up and that's that's a positive thing that we can all motivate ourselves with let's jump into our mailbag so you got a couple things here for us Stephen I do. First, we have a note from Kent H. on Facebook. He was speaking specifically about episode nine, in which we did with Austin Gunderson to explore Frank Peretti's classic spiritual warfare novel, This Present Darkness, in episode nine. Kent H. says, quote, This book saved my life when I read it in high school. Not literally, of course, but I was dabbling in things I shouldn't have been, and it opened my eyes. It'll always hold a special place in my heart. End quote. Interestingly, I did not even think about our topic when I chose that feedback for today, but I noticed there how a work of fiction, uh, even a work of fiction with a lot of speculation about angels and demons and such like, he says that this book saved his life. I would say that God used that book to help someone cultivate their imagination to realize he is messing with things he ought not to mess with. Guess what? The gospel is true and angels and demons are real, and the demons might get you, but <laughs> you need to uh, repent first. Secondly, we have a feedback from Lee W. Uh, he's commenting actually on the uh, the new Lorehaven channel uh, that we launched on YouTube. Every single one of the podcast episodes is there now at uh, Lorehaven's channel on YouTube. Lee W. says, quote, this is a literal answer to prayer. For so long, I've been looking for a place to find Christian worldview, sci-fi, and fantasy. Looking forward to what Lorehaven brings in the years ahead, end quote. That's awesome. Uh, Lorehaven Magazine does review the best of these stories, including the types of stories that we feel will help cultivate a Christian's imagination uh, in order to view the world in a biblical way and not be ambushed by some of these temptations that can lead us to seriously doubt our faith. One other thing I'm going to read, this is our, um, in response to our question, how did you become a fantastical reader? So what was your origin story? And we got a reply from a Brandon J who said, quote, there was a pop-up book called The Black Hole I read as a kid. That's the first fantastical book I can remember, and my parents still own it. And he sent the link to it. It's uh, on Thrift Books. So then I, I replied to Brandon. I said, oh, have you seen the movie The Black Hole? Because uh, I, I remember that as a kid, it, and it's, um, gosh, from like the 60s or something. And Brandon replied, I think the book was actually based on the Disney movie, but I never saw the movie. Maybe I need to check that out, end quote. And I thought this was so funny because, you know, now we're living in the age of the movie Interstellar, which of course is all about a black hole. And it made me wonder how many kids are growing up now where Interstellar is their first fantastical story. I mean, not, not as a book, but as a movie. The, the, the science has obviously gotten a lot better in movies. Brandon, thanks for sending us in. That's really fun to hear that. Well, we always want to hear uh, feedback from uh, listeners to the podcast, as well as readers of Lorehaven. You can email anything that you have to say about uh, this topic, uh, deconversion, holding on to your faith, challenges that you've had. We would especially love to hear about those because honestly, any testimony of a human being, a world that God has created, who has fallen into sin and deadness of heart, Whenever someone comes back from that to receive the regeneration and uh, the quickening of the heart to love Jesus more than sin, that's a miracle right there. And who doesn't want to hear an amazing miracle story, a real life fantastical truth, real life fantastical world? Email those 
send them to podcast at lorehaven.com or you can go to our website lorehaven.com and send us those notes. Uh, Zach, I have a few news of note here, items of news to note. Uh, the first one, of course, is that our new issue of Lorehaven magazine is out for spring 2020. The virus didn't stop us. Uh, we are still plugging along. It helps that all of this work can be done remotely anyway. Uh, the cover story there, we titled it The Best of Christian Fantasy. We reviewed 10 books uh, from the past and a more recent presence of uh, Christianity, Christian authors who wrote fantasy, sci-fi, and spiritual warfare, and more. All of those are in the free webzines, and you can get those issues delivered to you simply by subscribing to the email list at lorehaven.com. Second news of note, actually, Tosca Lee uh, is uh, been working with us uh, to give us some copies of the book, some e-copies, so you don't even have to get them delivered to you uh, with all of the hazards that can happen with the physical objects being delivered now across the world. Simply be a registered subscriber for Lorehaven Magazine. Again, that is for free. And then we'll be doing a free drawing for, uh, I think she sent us two download codes to get a copy of her, her novel, her pandemic novel last year, The Line Between. Just be a Lorehaven subscriber. We'll be reaching out to you about that. Zach, the third item is a little bit more personal. Uh, my book, my first book uh, done with two co-authors, The Pop Culture Parent, uh, Helping Kids Engage Their World for Christ. It has fallen victim to the plague. The, uh, the virus literally postponed my first book release. Uh, we were originally going to release it in spring 2020, uh, but now I now have a new release date. It is September 7th of 2020. Virus permitting, of course. Uh, you can get more information about that at lorehaven.com as well. Next on the podcast, we will be joined by Kathy Tires. She is the author of many amazing sci-fi and space opera novels, including her landmark Firebird series. And that's set in a space-faring world in which the Messiah has not yet come. Her next novel coming out is called Crystal Witness, and that will release from Enclave Publishing this summer. So she'll join us on the next podcast to explore that story and her whole career crafting spaceships and beyond. Crystal Witness actually released a little while ago, but it's getting a re-release, getting a little uh, extra polish and shine, and the new cover is amazing. We're really looking forward to asking her about that story. This week, though, uh, we will encourage you, keep your faith strong, keep your faith grounded, not in false imaginations, but in God's word, in Jesus Christ, who did so much to save us, who unilaterally saves us from death and suffering. Let his gospel drive you to seek the best of the stories that we have to help strengthen your imagination as we all in Christ continue to seek and find fantastical truth.